to highlight some of the things that we had learned from chapter to chapter. And then, after that, we'll be moving to um, Leviticus, and, uh, uh, in which I've been reading now for a month or so. And I'm kind of excited about it, a little frightened, I suppose, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, uh, it's a rich book. Uh, must be, uh, as my professors used to say, distinguish the times. And Leviticus was part of the law. And uh, uh, so it has that kind of complexity to it. But I'm looking forward to it, actually. But I'm also looking forward to reviewing some of the highlights and the principles that we've learned from the book of James. Let us pray together as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, always dependent upon your spirit, that we would understand and that we would speak the truth as it is in your word. So bless your word to our hearts and to our lips as we speak it. Bless the hearts of those who hear. Open them that we might comport with the things that you instruct us to do. Thank you, Father, for this precious word. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. First, let's read chapter 5. If you have your Bibles open there, chapter 5, the book of James. James speaks very plainly. Did you notice? Yes. Um, sometimes my family will confirm that I speak plainly, and sometimes too plainly. <laughs> so <coughs> I don't know if it's a virtue or what, but James speaks bluntly. Try to keep that in mind as we read this. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Uh, it's not that long. Chapter 5, letter of James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. I think that's pretty plain speaking. <laughs> your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. It's a reference to Old Testament scripture. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. What? That's sort of Dante-esque, isn't it? Yes. You have heaped, trash, uh, heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers you mo who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have Reach the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That means not Sabbath, but hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brother, 
brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? <coughs> Waiting patiently uh, for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. 2,000 years ago. But I affirm the coming of the Lord is at hand. I repeat the coming of the Lord is at hand. It was not just some sort of additional thing that he would say. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's talking about Christ. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. <coughs> is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a marvelous book, huh? Um, he ends on a positive note and he encourages people to love one another, to show grace to one another but also to be demanding that we be patient and that we avoid open sin. My, this is, uh, uh, this chapter has a whole bunch of stuff. It begins with this discussion of the rich. Now remember who the target of this letter is. It's for those Jewish Christians who have been chased out of Israel or at least out of Jerusalem and I've gone into a variety of places around the Mediterranean Sea. So they're kind of um, uh, uh, 
away from everything, but they're um, settling in these places and they become quite prominent in those places. Um, if you read the book of Corinthians, you'll see that. And a number of places, and we wonder how, uh, when the Apostle Paul goes out, uh, how did he run into people who were already believers? And it could be one of the ways is these people who were chased out of Jerusalem before Paul's ministry even began. They were believing Jews. But some of them, some of them weren't entirely honest. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Some of them were well-to-do. Did Jesus have any rich disciples? He did. There were two or three of them that were wealthy. I think Barnabas was one of them. Um, but uh, uh, mind you, it isn't the fact that you have riches that's the issue. It's what you do with them. And, uh, 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 and so that is exactly what he is aiming at right here. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming on you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I, I call that Dante-esque. Dante-esque. Um, kind of a graphic picture. Um, my goodness. Uh, uh, eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. So he's aiming his comment here at the rich, obviously. And some of them were well-to-do um, and became well-known merchants. The Apostle Paul encountered some of those. And, and yet, um, they have, in a way, uh, committed a, a rather serious sin. I think we can call it that by kind of boasting in their riches, trusting in them, having them as a center of your life and goals. They have riches. And he tells them to weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. I, I don't think it's fair to say just because you're rich that you're going to have miseries and weeping and howling. But it depends on your attitude toward those riches and how that's put to use. Uh, it isn't wrong to earn money or to even become well-to-do. I really can't speak to that experience myself. <laughs> I, uh, I'm amazed. Um, uh, a little aside here. Uh, in my lifetime, I went from a dollar and a quarter an hour. Does anybody remember when the, yes, a dollar and a quarter an hour, okay, was the minimum wage. And even when I went to college, got a master's degree and was employed by the state of Illinois, I made $15,000. And so when one of my grandsons graduated from the same university that I did, 
and went to Seattle for Amazon making 135,000. I just was stunned. <laughs> I don't understand. But anyway, my history of riches, if you will, are, is pretty modest. You know what the problem is, though? It's one thing to make that kind of money. It's another to pay 3500 a month for your rent. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, downtown Seattle is a pretty expensive place. So you're knocking down 12 times almost 4000 a month. $48,000 a year for rent? Uh, that's not rich, folks. <laughs> that's really not rich. Uh, it may sound like riches. But these people were rich. And you remember the one, Lazarus and the rich man, that one uh, 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 that we all know, the account of those. By the way, I believe it to be an account, not a myth. My atheist friends think it's just a story, a cute story. But it's the account of Lazarus and the rich man. And he lived, the, the rich man lived in luxury and threw his scraps out for Lazarus. But Lazarus went to be in Abraham's bosom, what we would call heaven. And the rich man went to hell. Mm. Wait a minute, that reminds me of our... Uh, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. This is in our bulletin. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The story that no one wants to hear is if you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to perish in hell. What can I say? Who do I preach? What do I preach? The word of God. I know about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lived in all kinds of comfort and luxury during his lifetime. And now, Abraham said, Look at you now. Lazarus, he laid at your gate, crippled. The dogs licked his wounds, and he ate scraps from your table. And look where he's at in Abraham's bosom. I think that that's a, it could be for those who are earthly. It's a rather sobering look at reality. But certainly riches have a corrupting nature or effect on the soul of man. I think that we still see it rampant in our society of people trying to make it rich, to make a lot of money. And then when they get there, they're almost never satisfied. And so they drive on either for more money to try to solve their problem or they just kind of go crazy. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. 
in the afterlife. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. It doesn't last forever. Your gold and silver are corroded and the corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You know what, Josh, I was just reading sometimes your remarks over on Facebook and when you preach that kind of message, people don't like you. <laughs> people are kind of... Uh, put off by that kind of frank talk. But here we have James, a half-brother to the Lord, speaking that same truth, and apparently not concerned whether he's going to make friends or not with the world. We need to have the same boldness in our witness before the world. Indeed, the wages, verse 4, of your laborers who mowed your fields, laborers that were what we would call day workers, or day, day, uh, they stood around and waited for somebody to ask them to work. They lived from hand to mouth, from day to day, and so that uh, uh, they didn't have a lot of money. And yet, they, and they mowed their fields, which you have kept back by fraud, the wages that cries out and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Um, we sometimes forget, well, I don't think we Christians do, but many times forget that God is the God who sees. I think that's one of his Hebrew names, isn't it? The God who sees everything. That's kind of scary when you think about it. And yet it's so true that God sees and that we ought to conduct our lives in the full knowledge that he sees. And God help us to live in such a manner as he is pleased with our lives. Thank the Lord for his seeing us. You have lived, he says to these people, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury just like the rich man and Lazarus. You, you have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned you have murdered the just. Eh, it's controversial about that, whether he's accusing them of out-and-out -out murder or if by it's a, an indirect kind of thing, that by their uh, keeping back their wages and that stuff, they kill people. The result is they die. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, he goes back to the believing persons, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit. Isn't that, isn't that just timely that we have that outside? I don't know. Have they, they haven't taken the beans out yet. But my wife and I, as an aside, we, we travel around and look at fields. What? <laughs> You're really getting old, aren't you? <laughs> we do. The reason is we're deer counters. 
And um, the couple that was back there that responded the other day, we had a a wonderful conversation about counting deer. They count deer too. (laughs) They're not here this morning, but, uh, but we go out to see the fields to see if they have started the harvest. And we watch the crops all year long from the planting and they come up a little short things like this. And then they grow into tall things and then they start turning colors like they do now and uh, appear that the corn is rotting away. And yet the fruit is ripe. And so we have discovered a trend that uh, right around Springfield, if you go just within five miles of Springfield, there's hardly any uh, harvesting going on. But go another mile into the farmlands of central Illinois, and they're about 50% done. It's really amazing. And uh, uh, I find it really curious that they're taking out beans, they're taking out corn, And uh, those are the two primary um, crops that we have here. And there's a whole principle behind that. (coughs) My wife grew up on a farm. I worked the farms for years. That That was my employment as a youth, is working on the farms and uh, of central Illinois. And uh, so I grew up with a kind of, kind of, uh, what shall you say, rudimentary knowledge of of crops and and farming and planting like this here, waiting patiently. I keep saying to my farmer friends, you better get out there, it's going to start raining here one day, and then you won't be able to get out there until well after the rains. Uh, uh, But there's a whole science and there's a whole, uh, what shall you say, about how you characterize that the crops, how they depend on things that the farmer has no control over. Rain, windstorms. Have you ever seen a a tornado rip through a cornfield? Oh boy. Uh, And when it does, I'm not saying that it just injures it. No, it rips up a whole passel of corn, takes it out, something we don't control. We don't control the weather and we can't control the weather. Gosh. Even the politicians can't control the weather. You'd think they could by the way they talk, but (laughs) they can't. I I will not use the word uh, climate. I won't won't use the word. I don't want to engage in that controversy. But God is the God of weather and the climate. And he's a whole lot smarter than people give him credit for. John Kerry, did you hear that? (laughs) Uh, The climate czar. Okay. Um, But right here, he uses this whole thing about crops. And the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Because that's where they make money. We used to... I used to drive tractor and wagon over to the elevator and dump it there. And and the farmer I was working with said, Vic, make sure you don't spill any. Because every grain 
has to do with their profit. They wait patiently for the end of the year and for the, profit to, uh, for the crop to come in because that's how they live. That's where they earn money. They wait patiently until it receives the early and the latter rain. That would be in the Middle East. You also be patient, he says. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's something you can't control, but it's something you know. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Wait patiently for it. You may even die of old age while you're waiting. Nonetheless, wait patiently for the coming of the Lord, for it is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge, and in my Bible it's capitalized properly, is standing at the door, the judge being Jesus Christ. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. There's some, um, I'm not going to go into it, I just think it's too esoteric to really concern ourselves with, but about uh, uh, the difference between enduring and patience. Um, there's a, some difference in those two things. But uh, 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 Job was an example of one who endured. Um, you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Did he go through a lot of stuff? You bet he did. It was awful. Do you read the last chapters? The Lord restored all plus some. God is merciful. Our calling, as much as we don't like to talk about it, includes the endurance of testing and tribulation. If you've lived more than 25 years, you've already experienced some of that. Things come into our life that we don't control. And things come into our life that are miserably bad for us at the time. A divorce. The loss of a job that you loved. Those kinds of things. The death of a child. All kinds of things that happen to even Christian people. What, are, what is our response to be? Be patient and enduring. Trusting always that Christ has your best interest in mind. He is managing your life. Now, I, I will, I think I got a few minutes. Just, I'll take a few minutes. It is by the grace of God that I'm standing right here doing what I love to do, and that is teach the word of God. I am 81 going on 82. I had my first heart attack at age 37. 37? Some will say, 
37. And that since that time, I've added on 10 more. It's been a test. It has been a call for me to persevere. And let me tell you why. I can cry every time I think of it because God knows my character better than I do. He knows that I need that kind of testing. If I am to run my life trusting him, I must endure patiently these tribulations. I do not claim to be perfect in the way that I've done that, but I have learned that I lean into Christ. I lean into him. I lean on him for every second of my life because I know that before I walk up this aisle to leave here, I might be gone. I live in that kind of circumstance. And like I said last week, but that's okay. I'm in the hands of the most merciful God that could possibly have been imagined. But we have to endure these things patiently. And that isn't as easy as it might sound. And the farmer and all of these people learn this thing. The judge is standing at the door. My brethren take the prophets and then he mentions Job. That's kind of interesting. Job endured. Was Job always happy about it? Read that book again. He was not at all happy about it. Have I mentioned the book of Habakkuk and a, a couple of sermons that I have somewhere in the deep, dark recesses of my literature I have at home. Uh, Habakkuk and me. Habakkuk, the little prophet with the little book, is that Habakkuk was a prophet. He was, he was communicating with the Lord and, he, and the Lord was not doing what Habakkuk really would like to have him to have done. And so Habakkuk says, I will sit up on the portal and wait to see if you'll do this or not. I said, that's kind of like me. <laughs> it's kind of like me, you know. I want things to happen in accordance with my plan, but he has a totally other plan, a different plan. And so Job, while he was at sometimes a very much complaining about the circumstances that he had to face, persevered. He endured to the end. Even when his wife said, ah, die, go ahead and die. It's better than going through this. Foolish woman. Mm. Did I say that? The Bible said that. So, no, endure to the end. That's our calling, is to be patient and enduring until the very end. Because the judge is standing at the door. 
Well done, thy good and faithful servant. I want to hear that, don't you? God grant me the perseverance and the patience to endure this lifetime. And so that the day that I pass on and I meet my Lord and he says, well done. God help me. And you too. That you might have that moment of peace and wonder and enter in to that place where the Lord lives and rules. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. I know there's controversy about that. Do you uh, then... uh, refuse to take an oath in the courtroom? Well, I'm going to give the, the various views there. Some say this is absolute, that you don't make any oaths at all uh, and such. But he's talking about those that were not genuine. There, you say something and you swear by something and you're really not serious about it. It's not valid. I personally take the view that it does not mean that I can't uh, 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 give an oath in court to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. He's talking about those that are insincere in my opinion. But I'm not going to come down and say my view is a correct one. It is controversial, the various things there. But he said, let your yes be yes and your no, your no, uh, no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Keep it simple and straightforward and honest and respond as you want to. Is anyone among you suffering? We have some people suffering, don't we? We do indeed. And we need to be aware of those. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. There it is. Are we doing this? Call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Wow. What a work of grace, eh? Ministering to the sick. Praying over them. Appealing to God. So much so that God forgives his sins and raises him up. Was it the oil or the prayer of faith? I suggest the prayer of faith. Oil, another controversy that we run into here all the time in James is whether or not we should be anointing people with oil. And in those days it was common to do so. 
olive oil was accepted as a medicinal, having medicinal, medicinal, I can't even talk, properties. And so they, they would use that. Now, I don't believe, my own personal view is, I don't even believe that they were doing that, but rather that it was symbolic of the spirit and of God's presence and uh, willingness to help this soul to overcome their uh, illness. And the prayer of faith, it doesn't say the oil, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. <coughs> and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What a marvelous ministry that is, eh? Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your trespasses to one another. Hello. Do we do that? I'm not so sure that we're in compliance with the Lord's will in this regard. But there are some words and principles that are uh, that are important to understand here. I don't think that you need to confess in the most graphic sense all of your sins, even to a close confidant. I don't think that's what it means. It says confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. The fellowship of the saints is extremely important. And I think we... we uh, the modern church, not just ours, but uh, churches, are missing this somewhat. There's a blessing here for both. We, uh, for those that confess their trespasses and for those who hear them and the fellowship that develops out of that, the sense of responsibility. If I confess my sin to Tyler... I'm not going to do that today, Tyler, but, uh, but if I do, I have given you some authority over my life. I'm going to feel less apt to commit that sin. That's the reason we need to confess the trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he gives an example. Elijah, a person much like ourselves, prayed that it would not rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. I don't expect that. But I tell you that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we need to be caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ, confessing our sins one to another and thus sharing the responsibility for that sin so that you won't commit it so much. I know. But I would like for you to there's a place for a confession of sin, I suppose. But I do not require that people get up and, and like I say, make explicit reference to their, the nature of their sins and such. Let that be between people. 
And even there, it doesn't have to be all that explicit. If a person comes to me and says, which some have, I've been unfaithful to my wife, I think I know what that means. I don't need any details. And I'm to pray with that person. I'm to accept that confession. And that it is uh, a, uh, a, a responsibility that is for normal people like Elijah. It just it, it says he's a man with a nature like ours. Exactly the same. All the prophets were as far as that goes. I identify with, probe, uh, with Job. If a man die, he says... Shall he live again? I will wait patiently for my change. That's Job, I love that. I'm waiting with Job. He's already found his change. He's been changed and it's home with the Lord. And I'm patiently waiting for my change. Brethren, finally, I'm sorry to take a little bit of time. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way <coughs> will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a wonderful ministry that is, eh? Let us help one another. Let us confess our sins to one another in private that we might join this rich tradition that James is appealing to us for. Let's pray and close. Our Heavenly Father, take the words of James which are from the Lord, inspired of God, and we take them, Father, as containing those principles which we are to follow and which are a blessing for us. And help us, dear Lord, to live out our life patiently and to endure the tribulations of our life with patience and acceptance and humbleness. Help us, dear Lord, to do exactly that until our change comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.